Welcome back, everybody, to the weekly Real Japan podcast. I am one of those, Kenzo. And I am Ferg. And this week, as we do every week, we will be bringing you some headlines from Japan. Although it has been a bit of a slow news week, we'll, uh, we'll try to see what we can find for y'all. And uh, before we get started and jump into things, we'll see how Ferg's been doing up in the mountains this past week. Yes, sir. So, I recently had to renew my driver's license. Oh boy. So, <laughs> I went to what they call the Untemenkyo Center uh, in Japanese, just means the driving license center. And I had to sit through a long lecture. Two hours it was for me, because this is actually my first time renewing my license in Japan.、Mm, yeah, I had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had to watch a scary video that showed the consequences of what will happen if we do not stop at a stop sign. A crime of which I've been guilty of <laughs> recently. Yeah, you got booked. I got booked. But yeah, it did. It, it showed this video. It was kind of like set up like a drama, and it had a man who was going to his in laws, and there's a stop sign. Junction that he passes kind of every week, it was set up in the storyline.、Uh-huh. And on this one occasion, he decided not to bother stopping because there's、oh, no. never any cars there, he thought. And he flew straight through and hit someone on a moped. And、oh, dear. his life was basically ruined and he ended up in prison. And Ouch. Yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it was directly stated, but you know, there was kind of like a lot. Hints of、uh, sort of marital strife, basically losing his wife, probably. And oh, he loses job. Oh, of course. Well, that's、oh, a、no. given. <laughs>、oh, <God> . <laughs> he lost everything. He lost everything. So we have to be very careful on the roads at sea. Yes. I did think, sorry, I just don't want to take up too much time with this, but. So、mm. it got me thinking. Remember before when I got stopped at the stop sign? And I said that the annoying thing about that is that I won't be eligible now in, for a gold license until. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the next time I renew. Oh, the next, next time, sorry, that I renew my driving license. Yeah, because you gotta、But、be like violation free for, was it five years or five something? Five years, exactly.、Mm. So the way it works now, right, is that I have a three year license. And then,、okay. assuming I'm violation or serious accident free. I'll get a five year license when I next renew it. Okay. And then after that, I will be eligible for a gold license. Because you only get the gold license when you renew your license. You can't, like, even right, if right, right. you hit five years midway through, you can't just stop your current oh, license. Oh, so it's going it to be what,、license. eight years? It's going to be eight years, yeah. But Damn. Here's the thing, right? If I that's do. That's a long a, time. Well, if I do a serious violation like、uh, speeding, which is worth four points, when I got stopped at the stop sign, that's only worth two points. But if I was speeding, so I got four points. Okay. Then next time I renewed my license, I, would own, I wouldn't get the five year license, I would get the three year license. So, what if I did、okay. a serious. What if I did a serious violation in my first year with this license, right? So I do it in year one. Then,、right. year, then year two and year three, 
I'm violation th free. So then I have two years. Then I renew it and I only get a three-year license because I did that violation. So then I have years, uh, what would be three, four, and five in terms of the gold license on the next license. So then I would get it after five years. Uh, is that how it works? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you think about that? Basically, artificially or, or on purpose, shorten the term of my second license by doing a violation yeah. in the first year of this license. Huh. So then I, I would have two years violation free on my current license. And then, because, but because I'd done the violation, I would only get a three-year license on my next renewal instead of a five-year license. So then I would be up for a gold license after five years instead of eight years. Yeah, like it. It oh, sounds like it might work. <laughs> Sorry, it would be after six years because I've got three years now and three years on the next license. Right, 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 right. What do you think? Yeah. About that? Hmm. I don't know. Probably there are there's someone out there that's more well versed in Japanese license yeah, laws than us. I would. Us uh, I would this. go to the Google. Yes, uh, they're probably screaming at their podcast player. That's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Hmm. Well, I. Hmm. Like, what color was your license when when you first got it? It was what? blue because. It, oh no, it was sorry. Blue. It was no, no, no. That's a mistake. It was. It, it was, was it, it green. It was green. It was green because it was my first license in Japan. For listeners. Right. Just for listeners, sorry, that aren't familiar with the driving system, there's green license for your first time, like your first mm -hmm. license in Japan. There's blue license, which is like the regular license that most people have. And then there's the gold license, which is, you know, shows that you're a good driver kind of, or that you haven't had any accidents or serious violations in the past five years. Yeah, because, yeah, you bring up an interesting point, because when I, I first got my license here, it, it was it was green as you know, is to be expected. But then right after, or no, no, no. When I first got my license, I got a moped only license. Okay. So it was green mm. because it's essentially, if, if, if any viewers have ever seen a Japanese driver license, you can just uh, look one up on the internet, but it's, it's a standardized, uh, it's like a template and there's a little grid and for each type of vehicle that you're, you know, legally allowed to operate, they just tick off a little box essentially on the license. So a moped only one, aside from that little grid, it's looks identical to like one to operate a, a an automobile or or like a bus, yeah, or or what have you. But um, yeah, because so I got my moped license and it was green, and then. Like six months later, I got my car license. Okay. And since it was, you know, it, it technically a renewal. Yeah. I it immediately switched over to blue. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, even though it had only been, you know, a couple months since mm. I first, first got my green one. So, yeah, um, you, you might be onto something there. I don't know. That is interesting. Or maybe if I was to get a moped qualification, 
Well, see, there's the thing. You can't, if you already got a car, you can't go back and get a moped because the car oh. license allows you to operate a moped mm. by default. So I would need to go up. I could get a truck license. Yeah, you can get like a truck license or um, you can get a motorcycle license, which is relatively easy. Yeah. You know, and um, doesn't cost all that much either. I mean, probably still not worth it just to get the gold license. And of course, I was joking earlier. I have no plans to deliberately violate any laws in an attempt to get a gold license a bit sooner. But yeah, but yeah, that is interesting. So, there's like, if, like if you were hmm. going to get a motorcycle license anyway, then you know it might be something to look into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I will have a look, bit of a look online. I bet there are these little tips and tricks. I bet there's sort of hidden ways that you can use the system to your mm -hmm, advantage mm -hmm. yeah because now that you mention it i don't i mean i'd have to go back and check but i don't think it took me eight years to get my gold mm. because i had gotten the blue at an early stage you know yeah that makes sense yeah yeah but i don't know yeah inter interesting stuff the mm. uh the way licenses work over here Right. Well, anyway, shall we um, hear, hear what you were up to on your weekend? Because we spent yeah. a bit of time there discussing the... <laughs> uh, me? I actually I went out. Oh, yeah? For, for, for drinks. For a change? Yeah, some, uh, some old friends. And um, yeah, it's uh, no, no social distancing here. It was the place where I went was packed. Was it? Yeah, it was a bit worrying, to be honest. Wow. So it didn't feel any different to no, pre-COVID days? Like everything was the same, yeah. And that I, I had to take, you know, the, the rather late train home. Mm. And it was packed as as it always is, as it always it really, was. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Were people wearing masks in the bar or wherever you went to? I mean, not no, not inside. I mean, it wow. was uh, mm. like outside, people walking around or people on the train. Everyone's wearing masks. The Japanese people are pretty good about that. But yeah, yeah. Once you step inside, it's like uh, it's like nothing. It's like nothing ever happened. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Astonishing. So it's a bit concerning. Yeah. Yeah, we could be in for a slightly worse winter, although as we've discussed many times, the numbers aren't really that high in Japan. Yeah, I think so. uh, Japan cumulatively has about the same number as the U.S. gets in a day. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're doing okay, but regardless, it, yeah. Although, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of hard in a in a country like Japan where everything's so so cramped to begin with to to properly social distance yeah one other thing as well is going to be that and i don't know maybe this relates to your drinking experience the other night but as the weather gets colder you know people won't be able to sit outside now yeah it's right, going to be more right. people sort of squashed inside in bars mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. and i think that that whole uh go to eats thing yeah yeah kind of compounding the issue like encouraging people to go out when i don't really think that's uh the best idea yeah exactly yeah. exactly but i don't know yeah we'll we'll see if i uh i get the covid 
Well, Can hopefully not. Eh? Weeks. Yeah, hopefully not. Mm. But yeah, that was a uh, that was my experience for the past week. Wow, first time out in a long while. Yeah, right? in, in a while. Yeah, yeah, a good session. Yeah, it was good. I guess. But, well, that's a good sign. Life is slowly returning to normal. Eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, hopefully, if Kenzo's sessions are back on <laughs> back on track. <laughs> Okay, I guess we'll um, move on to uh, the quick news roundup. Yes, sir. So, as we were discussing before we started uh, recording this week, there it has been a little bit of a slow news week in Japan, but that has also been, you know, the effect of that has been felt even even more so by the U.S. presidential election, which has dominated the headlines even here in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. It's uh, front page news even over here. Yes, sir. As we record this, the results are not yet in, but the nation is also kind of eagerly awaiting. Do you think that, you know, if Biden or or Trump is uh, is elected, it like which of those do you think kind of Suga will have a a, a re- good relationship with, or which do you think will be better for Japan? Because there was a lot of talk, right, that. Trump and Abe actually had quite a good relationship. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean it's difficult to tell how how true that was, but it it was certainly portrayed that way. Yeah, the media certainly uh, mm-hmm. they 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 like to you know it's like oh they're golfing buddies right and the, the the photo ops of them golfing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Seems kind of to me that Suga might be more of a Biden man somehow. It seems kind yeah. of like he'd be overpowered by Trump. I don't know. Yeah, I I I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with that sentiment. I think, although he seems, I think Su like Abe was very. I don't I don't know what the word is. Not opinionated, but he like he he it was like his way, you know. Yeah, he was, he was kind of like a hardliner kind of. Whereas Suga seems a bit more, uh, like open to, at least relatively speaking. Uh, open to different views or you know it's a bit more flexible i guess in his views is what yeah. i'm trying to say so i think he could do do well with either but yeah I, I agree he'd probably be a bit more compatible with biden i think yeah trump might be a bit too overpowering for him yeah i mean abe came from like a very kind of uh long established political family in japan yeah, you know, was yeah. kind of has been used to that sort of class and that elite level and that amount of money and things since he was, you know, very young. Whereas right, Suga comes right. from more a more humble background. So yeah, kind of like Joe Biden. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we'll have to wait and see. Eh? But yeah, yeah, wait and see. There was one interesting bit of news, and we did actually tweet about this in the past week. So followers of our Twitter might have seen this, but. Uh, Osaka residents rejected the move to a kind of metropolis system mm-hmm. uh, in the past week. Now, and they did so at a referendum. This was basically sort of splitting the city up from Osaka City into four distinct areas called wards. Similar to Tokyo, which, uh, as some people might know, has uh, 23 wards. Exactly, yes. And I think Tokyo is the only city 
in Japan, right? That has this mm-hmm, kind of correct, yeah, uh, structure where you know the idea is that like the wards can elect their own leaders and things and manage you know aspects of social care and things themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The vote was pretty close. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I know it, it was very close. However, it was narrowly uh, rejected. Yep. The, I- the idea, the proposal put forward was ostensibly to sort of reduce redundancies and somehow save costs. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, that was the, the idea. You know. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of talk about how, for example, Osaka Prefecture and Osaka City, their kind of jurisdictions overlap. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this leads to inefficiencies. I mean, maybe I don't understand the topic well enough or how the proposed savings would come about, but I don't know. It was never particularly convincing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, it, it, to me, it seemed, um, it seemed like a reasonable proposal on paper. Mm. You know, with the cost savings, it's like, okay, well, you know, okay, yeah, there are redundancies, but I, at the same time, I didn't really feel like, yeah, like you said, I didn't really feel like that there were that many places to save costs to the point where, you know, this, this I'm sure because it would be a, a bureaucratic nightmare to actually transition. Exactly. And then also, yeah. you know, presumably you'd have redundancies again in terms of you know, for example, like then you would have four elections for a a mayor, or in this case, like a, a governor of the different wards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As opposed yeah. to one election for the the mayor of the city. That's at true. The moment. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, maybe I'm being too harsh on this, and maybe I don't understand the topic too well enough. But it seemed to me like an attempt to sort of put Osaka on a somewhat closer footing with Tokyo kind of create almost like a Tokyo of the West of Japan yeah so my impression was it's it's um, uh, it's more of a because Osaka I think at least the politicians there have always I, I, I get the impression that they always feel like they're playing second fiddle to Tokyo yeah so, you know, if they were able to make it a metropolis, then it would be a, a big win for them. Yeah. Because they would finally be on the same footing as their their arch nemesis in Tokyo. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the, the populace there isn't as worked up about this issue as maybe the politicians are, which, which is why they probably voted down the uh the proposal yeah certainly um you know i don't get me wrong i you know i love osaka and kansai i lived there before i think it's a great area and i Mm. strongly strongly recommend that anyone who visits japan should uh visit the kansai area in west japan if they have time there's so much to see and do there and it's such a great place and it has its own kind of culture and things but yeah you know, in terms of the size of the city of Osaka, which is only one part of the Kansai region, and in terms of its functioning, like companies that are based there and things, it, it's just not on the same level as, as Tokyo. 
you know, there's the population of Osaka City itself, not the greater uh, sort of urban area, which doesn't really apply in this case because we're talking about it in the in the sense of which parts would become part of this ward system. Mm. In terms of the actual city that we can compare to the 23 wards of Tokyo, you know, Osaka has a population of about 2.75 million, whereas mm -hmm. Tokyo has almost 14 million. Right, right. Yeah, it's an order of magnitude almost. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're talking about, you know, almost five times the size. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I do feel that as much as they probably want this to happen, it won't, you know, or it'll be many decades before it's ever on a kind of comparable footing, realistically. And again, that's yeah. not any slight on the Kansai area, which, you know, I love. I think it's a great area. I lived there before and all those qualifications. But in, just in terms of like the population and, you know, you have all the government functions centered in Tokyo. Although there are head companies headquartered in Osaka, it's far more common for companies, especially large companies, to be headquartered in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, I do. Yeah, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just not. Yeah, I mean, it's no slight on Osaka, but it's just not as big of an urban area. I mean, that's just the bottom line, you know. And so I think uh, I think the people got it right because they, they realized that it's just not not worth the, the hassle, really. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean... Just was there anything more to say on that little story? It was only a little story, but it did. We did talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's that's about it. And mm. uh, seeing as how there wasn't much else in the news this week, uh, yeah, I guess we'll uh, do a, a quick COVID roundup. Yeah, just very quickly. Not been too many stories about COVID either in the past week, but there were six hundred and twenty-four new cases in the twenty-four hours leading up to. 9.30 a.m. on the 4th of November, bringing the total number of cases to 104,157. So we have broken the 100,000 mark. We have. We have crossed that ominous milestone. Mm -hmm. And there's no turning back now. Yep. And there were also four new deaths, bringing the total to 1,799. This the figure includes 122 people in Tokyo. I suppose somewhat on the low end. Of... Yeah, I guess. Yeah, a bit on the low end, yeah. Yeah, but again, not extremely low and not extremely high. Yeah, it's just uh, it's like, like we've been saying for the past month or two. It just kind of goes goes up a little bit and goes down a little bit and just it's, uh, just oscillates around. Between yes. like the hundred to three hundred range, you know, depending on the the day or the testing regime for the previous couple of days or whatever the case may be. Yes, certainly. I mean, perhaps one slightly concerning thing in the in the numbers that have been coming out lately for the past week or two weeks or so has been the numbers from Hokkaido. They included. So those figures I just mentioned included 75 people in Hokkaido, which is quite mm. high, really, considering the population of Hokkaido is significantly smaller than, than Tokyo. Yeah. And, and, and and you got to remember, too, back, you know, in, uh, I guess, February, March, around that time frame when 
you know, the, the COVID re really started gaining a foothold over here. Uh, Hokkaido was one of the first places that kind of had a, uh, a, a sizable uh, outbreak. Certainly. And Certainly. they had to have a, a local state of emergency and a lockdown or a, a lockdown as as much as they could with the the laws in Japan don't don't allow a proper lockdown. But uh yeah, they closed all the schools and things which seemed like mm -hmm. you know perhaps a bit of an overstep even back in those early days. Time, how yeah. naive we all were then. Mhm. Mm but yeah, it, but now that Hokkaido might be gaining some steam again, it, it um might be because of the the colder weather. Certainly, it could be. Yeah. The Ministry of Health, Labour and Welfare has sent a couple of experts up to Hokkaido to see what's going on mm -hmm. and why cases are rising up there. So I'm sure those mm. special boys will be able to figure it out and see what's going on. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> just one, before we move on to our main stories, just one interesting little tidbit. Today was actually... The first time I can remember since the whole COVID story broke that I logged on to the usual Asahi uh, newspaper website, one of the big uh -huh. kind of uh, news organizations here in Japan. And the COVID section, they have a, a section on their front page that displays like the latest figures about COVID and some mm. other top stories about COVID. This was the first time I can remember that it's been minimized. So, oh really? Yeah, it's just like a little thing, and it was you know click here to see more. No right, right, numbers right. on the front page, which is quite interesting. I thought. Hmm. Well, people are probably just tired of it. Yeah, and as we mentioned as well, probably most people are logging on to new sites now to check the presidential, the results of the presidential right, yeah, yeah. race, and that coupled with it's just like nothing's really changed for you know the past couple months it's it's not going away but it's not getting worse it's just pretty much the same every day yes sir certainly yeah but okay we'll uh wrap that up then and uh move on to some more detailed news items that we've got to share with everyone um so i'll i'll, I'll start out with mine it's um uh, it's kind of a weird one, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless. So the uh, the Tokyo Metro Police Department, good old Metro uh, Feds. Yep. Yeah, uh, recently arrested. Uh, let's see, I think three men for. And it's funny the name of the law that they were in violation of. It kind of goes to show how antiquated the Japanese laws are. But the uh, this is just a rough translation. But the law that they violated was uh electronic calculator use oh dear yeah uh what's uh fraud oh so dear. fraud fraud with the use of an electronic calculator and basically it just just means anytime you i think anytime you yeah uh, there's like fraud with involving computers i believe this is the law that gets applied Mm. Because back in the day, a uh, a calculator, a pocket calculator, was essentially a computer. Yeah. And uh, so, what did they do specifically? 
So these three guys, they had a little operation going where they uh, would get massive amounts of SIM cards for telephones, for mobile phones. Okay. And they would use these SIM cards to enroll in mobile payment services. And the way, maybe it's like this in other countries, I, I think... I think it's like this in other countries, but well, like when you first enroll to whatever mobile payment service, you're given like a you know a little bonus, like a couple of dollars, a couple of quid, mm. a couple of yens. They they give you a little sign sign up bonus, and the way they authenticate users when you sign up, so that you know one person can't just keep churning uh, bonus money. With the same phone number, they uh, they send you a text message with a little password on it or a number, and then you input that on the on the on the app, and then that's how you get your bonus. So what these guys did is they just had tens of thousands of SIM cards, and they would sit there, and they probably had some kind of script running to to automate the whole thing, and they would. So they would sign up and they would get a 500 yen sign up bonus which is about $5 and then the bonus comes in the form of loyalty points so you can't just you know exchange it for cash so what they would do is they would sign up they would get the points and then they would have a, a different guy just list something on like an internet like an auction website mm. i mean it was probably like i don't know a bottle of water or something right yeah and then and then the other guy would buy it for 500 yen and then once the money is transferred to the, the seller the seller is able to cash out mm. via bank deposit and they would just do this over and over and apparently the authorities confiscated about 10,000 SIM cards. That and is the, astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, which, I mean, that alone is about 5 million yen, so about uh, 50,000 US. Um, and but during the course of the investigation, apparently, because these weren't the only SIM cards they had, it, it appears that they have allegedly racked up about 20 million yen in free money. Wow. And so about $200,000 US. How, which is uh, mm. it's a lot of money. So how did they get that um, number of SIM cards? Because, you know, you can't, even like with the the budget SIMs that have come out recently, mm. as far as I'm aware, you can't just sign up and say, I want 10,000 of these. Yeah, so that's um, that's probably where the fraud bit comes in. Mm. Um, and, and also specifically, this is a, it's a good question. They're not actual like phone number. Well, not phone number, but actual voice sims. They're data sims. Yeah. And in Japan, legally, I think that like there's there's an upper limit to how many voice lines that you're allowed to have oh is that yeah it, it, i think it's um like five lines maybe i think maximum 
Oh, I didn't know that. that one person yeah, is allowed to have, which is it's in place to prevent um, like criminal activity, right? Like one person signing up for like a bunch of sims and then distributing it to his henchmen. That's kind of like burner phones, that kind of thing. It's to prevent that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but apparently there is no, there's no upper limit to the number of data sims you're allowed to have. Mm. And oftentimes data sims will come with SMS functionality so that you're able to, you know, use payment services and stuff, even without a voice plan. Uh, but that being said, yeah, I mean, you can't just walk in and say, give me 10,000 data sims. Like, it's not going to fly. Um, but according to an expert that they interviewed for this article, um, apparently data-only sim, if you know how to work the system, like one person can usually get about 100 sims. Mm. So, okay, so one person is 100. That means you need about 100 people to sign up, which, um, I mean, I don't know. It kind of sounds like it might be a lot of people, but then, you know, if you're if you run a criminal enterprise and you got all your lackeys and then they got their friends and you offer them a cut, probably wouldn't be that hard to get 100 people together or 200, yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if they had any insiders at any of these companies that offer cheap sims, and then yeah, it could be yeah yeah maybe not the actual companies but at like a like a distributor right mm. yeah yeah it's definitely a possibility yeah or if they had some kind of inside knowledge that was I mean I know you said in the article that they found the sim cards but I wonder if they were maybe. if they had some kind of way of assigning phone numbers themselves so they were just giving themselves phone numbers and then yeah it's a, it's a possibility i mean if yeah if they have people on the inside then they could they could do whatever they want yeah mm. which is uh maybe why it's kind of uh, such a big deal or i wonder if maybe they were applying to lots of different places so say you said one person could get about 100 data sims i wonder do you yeah, think yeah that's what this guy says yeah if you apply to say like different vendors of data sims maybe you could get like a hundred from each do you think or is that stretching it too far and then i don't know it looks like yeah because i think all the operators are supposed to share information mm. so i i think when this person says one person get a hundred that probably means you could get like you know 10 from 10 different vendors yeah i think you can get around 10 without uh, raising too much uh too many red flags yeah which kind of does make sense because say if they're like they have a special offer on the data sim for you know one gigabyte of data for mm -hmm. a low price you could make the case that say i'm a gamer or something and i want 10 of them yeah yeah and and i also like i have a couple of data sims um mm. that i use personally and i think because uh, uh, you can you can add you know additional sims and i think on on the company that i use i think the upper limit is around 10 yeah yeah it's kind yeah so it's an interesting case of uh people gaming the system mm. and do you think this was really like organized crime kind of 
thing or do you think this is more like a few friends kind of got together and figured out hey we could maybe game this system you know i mean it seems like a pretty like if it was you know like a thousand sims Hmm. um, it might just be like okay maybe it's a couple guys that had a an ingenious idea but sadly got caught but yeah the sheer volume it makes me think that it probably has some some type of affiliation with uh, another organization behind the scenes pulling the strings. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? You got, yeah. I mean, like you said as well, probably they if they had some kind of script to automate it and things, but I wonder how. So you get that five hundred yen bonus mm-hmm. for that. You have to. Presumably register the sim somehow. Then you have to sign up to PayPay. Then you have to sign up to the auction site. Let's say it's Yahoo Auctions or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the seller also has to list the item. Yeah. So, you know, unless unless that all takes you less than half an hour per sim, it's not really worth it, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, which kind of... uh... Pretty much necessitates automation. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, if you're doing it manually, there's no way it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. You'd be better off just getting a minimum wage job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'd be better off just working. (laughs) Yeah. It's, yeah, it is a fascinating case, though, isn't it? I'd like to read more details about it. I hope we see some kind of in-depth piece on this because, or, you know, I mean, we have talked about it in-depth, but more details come out in the media mm-hmm. yeah yeah because um yeah the details are a bit sparse in the article i mean i pretty much went through all, all the details that there are mm. so yeah hopefully we might see some more concerning this story yeah yeah but watch out users out there if you're thinking of you know taking advantage of these free offers when you sign up to th- things Think again. Yeah, they'll book you under the electronic calculator fraud law. Yeah, although I suppose, like you said, if you just did it with 10 or even probably 100 data sims, that probably wouldn't raise any eyebrows, do you think? No, I don't think so. You'd probably be okay. Yeah. Although I'm not endorsing this type of activity, but you'd uh, probably be okay. No, sir. <laughs> we don't endorse any criminal activity at the Real Japan That's do. correct. Uh, All right, that about wraps it up for me. Okay, so in my story for this week, um, well, as I said before we started recording, it's more of a profile than a story, but I want to talk about a British guy, a fellow compatriot, David Atkinson, and his role in Japanese politics, because it's very unusual that a foreigner has such an influential position as he appears to have. I mean, it was a tabloidy article in mm-hmm. a well-known tabloid magazine called Shukan Bunshin. So, any listeners, yeah, bear that in mind. Although, I think the, the caveat should be um, Bunshin, Shukan Bunshin, people call it Bunshin. But they're, it's not like in the West, I think. Because mm. in the West, tabloids is just like ridiculous kind of, you know, it's like Trump is actually an alien. Or, you know, it's just, like, ridiculous uh, articles. But 
in, yeah. in Japan, at least, the tabloids a, a lot of times they're 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 actually not that far fetched. Like they're actually pretty accurate. But a lot of the time, as well, they break stories. In fact, like a mm-hmm. lot of the time, yeah. you will hear, like for example, I mean, it wasn't in Bunshin this one, but the uh, when Abbey's health health first started to deteriorate mm, that was mm-hmm, first reported mm-hmm. in one of these tabloid magazines i can't yeah. remember the which one it was offhand but i know it was one of the tabloid magazines and it wasn't mentioned so yeah I, I think that the difference at least in japan between like a you know so-called proper news outlet and a tabloid is just whether the sources are like independently verified or not because mm. a lot of times i feel like the tabloid articles like it'll be like the sources will be kind of sketchy but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's false you know and like you said a lot of times they do break stories yeah yeah that's that to to me that's kind of the feeling i get where it's just you know whether or not it's it's independently verified yeah and a lot of the thing as well is with the tabloid magazines here you know because they're not published every day like newspapers the reporters can spend a bit more time on stories mm, so you yeah, get you do get these more in-depth stories like a lot of the ones we've talked about have been sort of mm-hmm, based mm-hmm. on these tabloid articles yeah yeah but, uh, anyway, but anyway sorry sorry to cut in yeah no 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 it's interesting for our, our listeners to know where we get some of our information from but they should bear yeah, that in yeah. mind i mean probably not as bad as a real tabloid in the west but still could have a tabloidy quality to it yeah just uh take it with a grain of salt Yes, sir. So, David Atkinson, this British man, and a former analyst at good old Goldman Sachs, the vampire squid sucking on the face of the earth, as it was famously called. All right. Yes, sir. He has been described as Suga's kind, Suga the PM, as his his kind of tutor or even his master because of the extent to which Suga is said to listen to his advice. Really? Hmm. So as we uh, record this in November 2020, uh, David Atkinson is 55 years old. He studied Japanese at good old Oxford University in the UK and Mm. then worked as a consultant for a few years in the UK before moving to Japan and becoming a Tokyo-based analyst, first at Salomon Brothers famous, uh, well-known kind of securities firm and investment bank, and then yeah. uh, Goldman Sachs in 1992. Okay, so he's a, he's a big shot. He's a big shot. So just to kind of go into his background a little bit before we jump into the this story and why he's relevant now, but according to an acquaintance quoted in the article, there was some talk that he was related to Queen Elizabeth, that doesn't seem to be true, but it does seem that he comes from quite a good family, I suppose we would say. Mm, okay. So, you know, not a poor family, not a man from hum- a humble background, it seems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, after he sort of studied Japanese and then came to Japan and, you know, started working as an analyst, he was apparently ahead of the curve, really, when it came to sort of seeing some of the issues with the Japanese economy and in particular sort of pointing out many of the bad assets of Japanese banks which 
did indeed lead to the bursting of the bubble in the Japanese economy around the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a result of his sort of prescient oversight, I suppose you would say, his prescient foresight, he mm. and his, you know, his skills as an analyst, he was really at the top of his game. And it seems probably, according to someone quoted in the article, that he was making at least uh, 200 million yen per year at the peak of his success. So wow. at least about 2 million yen, roughly. I mean, $2 million. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. $2 yeah. million. Yes. <laughs> 2 million yen would not be an impressive <laughs> <laughs> salary. That'd be, that'd be fresh out of college salary. Uh, yes, sir. And as a result of his success, he was able to buy a number of nice properties, uh, including a very nice place in Minami Aoyama. With yeah, a... at great prices, I would think, because it's right after the bubble burst. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. Uh, and its place in Minami Aoyama was worth at least 300 million. Again, according to the article, mm. he also built a second house in Karuizawa with uh, a loan mm, of. As people do. <laughs> yes, sir. We'll, we'll talk about this, but these three properties I'm about to mention are kind of like the typical sort of three Japanese properties that one might buy, but mm-hmm. he bought his second house in Karuizawa with a loan of uh, 45 million which was fully paid off in a few years. And mm. then he also bought a nice Kyoto townhouse and reformed that. And that is likely oh. to have cost perhaps uh, a little under 200 million yen, about 2 wow. million US dollars was the figure given in the article. So, you know, good old Shukan Bunshin is reckoning his property, his assets just in property to be sort of almost in the 600 million yen, 6 million US dollars range. Mm-hmm. Pretty significant. But I did think, you know, he's got the Tokyo sort of nice place in Minami Aoyama. He's got his little getaway in Karuizawa and he's got his nice Kyoto townhouse. That's sort yeah. of like a real good like, set of Japanese properties, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's like the, the trifecta of uh, like well-to-do Japanese people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The article also said he's a master of the tea ceremony, but I don't know how true that is. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, he's a man of culture as well. A man of culture. You know, (laughs) I'm sure that when he was an analyst, uh, he did not have much time to devote to learning the tea ceremony, which is, you know, takes a huge amount of time to, to learn properly. But mm-hmm. now that he is kind of semi-retired, not quite. Uh, oh so, yeah, it might might be some truth. I mean, it might be a bit of an interest of his. I doubt he's a master of it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure it's uh things are a bit you know uh, blown out of proportion to make the article you know more more interesting. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So anyway, so after he left Goldman Sachs in two thousand and seven. He's had a, a fairly interesting career and one that is quite unusual, particularly for a foreigner uh, in Japan. Mm. So he actually became the chairman of a company called Konishi Decorative Arts and Crafts Company in 2010. And what is this, this like? A, is this a legitimate enterprise? Because it sounds like a front for something else. <laughs> no, it is a legitimate enterprise. You can okay. see their website on the internet. 
Although their website does look like it was designed in the 1990s, which <laughs> is not particularly unusual for a Japanese yeah, company. Yeah, it's not unusual, yeah. No. But uh, he became... He was a consultant first after he retired from Goldman Sachs in 2007, and then he became chairman in 2010, as I said. And this company is interesting because what they do actually is they restore sort of like old Japanese uh, cultural properties, sort of national heritage type uh, temples uh, and shrines and things like that. Now it's even more shady. <laughs> now it's even more shady. Yeah, it's like the government contracts, right? That kind of thing. Well, as you rightly pointed out, you can see how this would be perhaps give him some sort of political inroads or means to start making political uh, connections. Mm, yes. Mm. Although whatever uh, connections he was making were certainly speeded up uh, when he began writing and releasing books. One of the most notable was a book, you know, the English title, something roughly like A New Theory for Making Japan a Tourist Destination. This book was published in 2015, so okay. right before kind of like tourism became a real big part of the Japanese sort of uh, economic policy. Yeah, yeah. And it became a bestseller, and apparently it was a favorite of Suga, who was the chief cabinet hmm. secretary at the time, which led to Suga requesting to meet Atkinson, and then asking Atkinson to participate in kind of tourism strategy committee. Uh-huh, uh-huh. and kind of as a result of this or he's gone on to form extra connections and things and he's involved in over 20 such councils according to the article mm. and Suga has praised him saying that uh, last year he said when he was cabinet secretary he said I am you know something roughly like I am doing what David Atkinson said and now things are turning out as he said they would I wonder how he feels now that the coronavirus has hit the economy and we've seen some of the potential downside of, you know, making tourism a cornerstone of your economic policy. Yeah, or the over-reliance on tourism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, so apparently the, the, the way how he became chairman of this Konishi Decorative Arts and Crafts Company, which I might just refer to as Konishi, but was his next door neighbor apparently in Karuizawa was the previous president of this company and huh. he asked him to kind of take over the business. It was founded in the 1600s, so it has a long, rich history. And as I said, they do sort of restorations of cultural properties. But mm. in particular, they work with like lacquer work you know, like a lot of the lacquer you see in temples and shrines. In yeah, Japan. yeah, yeah. Uh, urushi, they call it in Japanese. And mm -hmm, it's kind of mm -hmm. like one of these traditional sort of Japanese crafts, I suppose you would say. And apparently right. it's a bit of an interesting uh, industry because it's, it was in a very tight spot up until a few years ago. Uh, because of the, it's one of these things that is, you know, it, it was kind of like an old artisan uh, craft that takes a lot of time to be trained and to learn how to do it properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the industry was, or these kind of cultural properties, places that needed lacquer work, were gradually moving to cheaper, sort of worse quality Chinese lacquer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But 
you know, partly due to Atkinson's efforts, there has been a shift back to trying to use Japanese lacquer where possible, even though there's a, a lot of difficulty in kind of training people and, making, right, right. you know, making sure that it's a sustainable industry. But Atkinson started uh, trying, you know, using his government connections, basically, to try and get government support for his business, which on the one hand, it, I mean, it does make sense that, you know, if it's sort of like looking after important Japanese cultural properties, that is absolutely something that should be handled by the, or that the government should have a part in, I think. But yeah, it yeah. is interesting. He's someone who is sort of like, you know, has a history kind of at the forefront of capitalism, being in one of the very most kind of like capitalist industries, I suppose is, you know, it's quite happy to get government support when it, when it suits him. Oh, yeah. Of course. Free money. Yeah, but I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe that's harsh. I, I, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be too harsh. People are, of course, allowed well, to. And know. also, I mean, he, I'm sure he's paid his fair share of taxes. So. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to try to recoup some of that, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to fault him for that. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I mean, there's going to be different views about the profile that we give today. You know, some people kind of think it's, you know, take a more cynical view. He's using his political connections and stuff to gain influence. Other people, though, will see, you know, perhaps rightly that he is someone who is contributing a great deal to the preservation of, you know, Japanese sort of, you know, traditional cultural properties and at the same time sort of trying to contribute to the economy using his expertise at you know, as an analyst and his yeah, ideas I mean, it, about it, tourism. It, you know, it, it appears that, I mean, something positive is coming out of it, right? So, I mean, it can't, can't be all bad. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, through his sort of uh, political connections, or, well, in particular, a man called Seiichi Wada, who we'll, we'll come back to soon. He's probably the most interesting part of this story. But... Uh, he would later be the chairman of Konishi. Apparently, he was he's described in the article as a kind of like international financier, which I'm not really sure exactly what that means, but someone who <laughs> helped arrange like what international financing. Exactly, yeah. So but, basically, he's a loan shark. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, to be frank, it gave some examples of companies that he had helped arrange you know, financing for on international markets. So perhaps mm. some kind of in investment banker, though it didn't say that directly mm. in the article. And I would think they would just say that if it was easier, yeah, you know, maybe yeah, just yeah. someone who has a lot of political connections and helps, you know, companies hire him as a consultant and he helps them get financing. I mean, who knows? It was, it was a bit vague on what his actual uh, background is. shady to me. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Eh? But uh, he actually, from his days at, Wasada University, he was on close day on close terms, or is on close terms with Hakubun Shimomura, who is an LDP politician and the former Minister of Culture. And through Wada, uh, who would later be the chairman of Konishi, Atkinson met Shimomura, this politician, and the Minister of Culture. And through his connection with Shimomura, he basically convinced the Ministry of Culture, it seems, to increase the budget that they allocated to restoring cultural properties and also to adapt the policy of using Japanese lacquer from around April 2018 for uh, political, uh, sorry, for national uh, treasures. I wonder how much the bribes were for that one. <laughs> Dude! 
Well, I'm sure you, you know you know that's how it works, man. <laughs> no way. Well, I do think probably his company Konishi has benefited hugely from the government shift to using Japanese uh, lacquer. Yeah, the uh, the timing seems a bit uh, suspect. <laughs> yes, sir. There has even been some people that have suspected uh, Atkinson of being a spy for MI6, but there doesn't seem to be any. <laughs> The plot thickens. The plot thickens indeed, but there doesn't seem to be any basis for that. Uh huh. Well, I'm sure you know if he was American, he would he would have been a CIA spy, right? I mean, it's just <laughs> just the fact that he is a foreign national automatically people think he's a spy. Yeah, exactly. Particularly yeah. with uh, political connections. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Atkinson also became an, a special advisor to the Japan National Tourism Organization in uh, 2017 Mm. and this uh, body has kind of sort of been responsible for this kind of like a a movement in the industry to create these DMOs it's a bit technical it's not that interesting for listeners I guess but they're basically like destination management organizations that are kind of under this national body and they work in the different regions trying to you know create tourism resources Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm But interestingly enough, a man called Yasuyo Yamazaki, who is the president of Kuni Umi Asset Management and a former colleague of Atkinson, was appointed the DMO advisor, whatever that is, to the tourism ministry. Okay. So it seems that that is one example, it seems, according to the article, of how Atkinson has a lot of influence over the kind of personnel decisions particularly with regard to like the tourism industry and things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not just that uh, apparently also the selection of contractors and even the policies that are adopted apparently he came up with the idea of increasing the number of five-star hotels in japan Uh, and that is a policy that the government is now implementing these kind of like luxury hotels Interesting. I didn't didn't even know that was a thing. No, but I do think it's kind of interesting that because, you know, and this was mentioned in the article as well, you know, it's not sort of like a 100% original thought of mine, but I did think it was interesting that the, um, like Japan has its own kind of like luxury hotel or alternative, I suppose you'd say, in in the ryokans. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess certainly there's scope for having some of these luxury hotels, but I'm not sure whether they need to really have a lot of them. I don't know. It is an interesting thing, but I guess, you know, people have different views on what the policy policy should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, just quickly, kind of like before we like, wrap... How, do, mm. how, does that, how does that translate into like a government policy? Because, those, because the hotels are all run by private companies. This is just like offering more tax breaks Kind, like that kind of thing for, yeah i guess it would be that kind of thing because they can't tell people to you know like hey build a five-star hotel but you know i mean if, if the company doesn't want to you know if it's not going to be profitable or they don't project it'll be profitable then they're not going to so i wonder you know specifically how they i, I guess like the only thing that comes to mind is like tax breaks yeah certainly i mean tax breaks would be the obvious one wouldn't it i suppose they could also encourage local governments to you know create kind of like as we've seen with the integrated resorts of like Mm. uh 
bids attract bids for right, developers right, right. to build like luxury hotels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know that if they could create some kind of national policy and then encourage local governments to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to try and attract sort of like this this kind of development. Yeah, it is very interesting. I I don't know what the exact mechanism is of how they would implement a policy like that. But anyway, let's go back to this Wada uh, character, Seiichi Wada, before mm. we kind of wrap up. Because like I said, he does... <laughs> now, this is kind of like where the story takes a bit of a strange is the, turn. Is he the arms dealer guy? Arms dealer? <laughs> well, he's like, no, the international the loan <laughs> shark. International financier. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, now, apparently, he... Although I said, you know, he was like the chairman of Konishi, apparently he wasn't actually that interested in being involved in the management of Konishi. And it... <laughs> so he just wanted to collect his paycheck. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently he's more kind of interested in moving money around, large sums of money, and <laughs> using his. Yeah, I'm interested in that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not that easy a kind of hobby to get into i suppose is it? yeah <laughs> apparently he has lots of political connections too you know i mentioned uh hakubin shimomura before but apparently he's also on good terms with our good friend toshihiro nikai oh boy <laughs> <laughs> not, not him again not him again he seems to crop up every week yeah the, you know, for listeners that haven't listened to our previous episodes, a kind of LDP uh, chief secretary and or general secretary, yeah, sorry, and basically the the godfather of Japanese politics, the godfather of Japanese politics, and particularly in regard to the tourism industry, he's kind of the don mm, of the tourism yeah. industry, um, and notably very connected with the sort of uh, push to build these casinos or integrated resorts, as they're called. Yeah. And also another of Wada's political connections, or, or well, kind of business connections, I suppose, is uh, Yukio Fujiki, who is from Fujiki Corporation. And this company is closely involved in the bid for building a casino in Yokohama. So mm. <laughs> let's see what you think of this, because this is a bit strange. But apparently, apparently, Shukan Bunshin got hold of some international bills of exchange they're called sort of like an international money order as as far as mm. i understand i'm not 100 percent sure what this is so it's basically like a glorified check yeah, yeah 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 and apparently these were made out to the president of a company based in tokyo who's not named in the article and okay. <laughs> wada according to the article he was taking them round sort of potential investors in tokyo and saying that they just needed to raise some funds for attorneys uh, attorney kind of fees in order to convert these international bills of exchange into money <laughs> what so so you know if 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 these uh, helpful kind of investors or people that wada was visiting would just give him some money then he could pay an attorney to sort of uh, convert these uh, international bills of exchange into very large sums of money. I, I don't actually have the amount of money, but 
this is just off the top of my head. It could be could be wrong for listeners, but I think it was somewhere in like the eighty million dollars range, perhaps something like that. Are you sure this wasn't like a spam email you got <laughs> the other day? Well, it might interest you to know that the person listed as the account manager <laughs> on these these bills was prosecuted for fraud in the US in <laughs> 2005. Oh, he wasn't from Nigeria? He, he wasn't. Well, that's what I would have expected. <laughs> no, but it, it does sound like it, doesn't it? Yeah. We have, you know, a huge amount of money waiting in a bank account. Just, you know, send us some money to pay for an attorney and we'll we'll give you a cut. I mean, basically. And perhaps the idea was that they would be using these the money from these to build sort of casinos uh, mm-hmm. to use in the, the bids for integrated resorts somehow. I mean, it certainly yeah, sounds okay. like a scam. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but so yeah, so he was trying to market this Nigerian prince scam, dude. And, but he, <laughs> but he, he, he hasn't been like, uh, like they're not going to go after him for that. I mean, no. Well, I mean, it doesn't say in the article that it's a scam, but it heavily implies that i suppose who would say yeah because i mean it seems like he's he's an accomplice right if he's <laughs> it sounds that way certainly yeah so apparently shukan bunshin spoke to the company whose president's name was listed on the checks remember i said there was an unnamed like there was it was kind of made out to the president of a company in tokyo although the actual specifically who it was wasn't named Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Apparently, Shukan Bunshin spoke to that company and they said that uh, Wada and the president of that company did have some kind of contracts. They knew each other and they had some kind of contracts and it was related to patents for something. Didn't go into detail, but. Um, and somehow those contracts were leaked to, you know, some other people described as brokers in the article. And then. <laughs> okay. And then as a result, it's causing the company uh, like a huge amount of issues and that these basically uh, the the bills of uh, exchange are not real and they can't actually be converted into cash and it's just you know kind of causing the company lots of issues having the, their president's name on it was what the company said to Shukan Bunchen apparently in the article so the company said all right the the, the checks are void yeah, yeah, more or less, or or perhaps just false, not not real. Yeah, you know? yeah, or 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 fake. Yeah, or fake, whatever so, yeah. the case may be. And but then this guy was trying to cash them anyway. Well, trying to go around potential investors to collect funds. You know, using these as a, yeah. a sort of document to try and get funds and saying, "Hey, look, here's the international money orders or the international bills of exchange. Yeah. You just give us the money for an attorney. Look at this. It says." However much, $80 million here or whatever. We'll give you a cut of that. So, Yeah, look at all the zeros. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So that is kind of like an interesting tangent for this, this profile of David Atkinson, mm-hmm. who, as I said, you know, you can either take a cynical view or you can take a sort of, you know, more positive view. But I did just kind of want to talk about it 
uh, talk about him this this week because it is an interesting example. It's very in very rare that we see kind of foreigners have the kind of influence that he appears to have in Japan. You know, it like there have certainly been successful foreigners that make lots of money, but that doesn't necessarily or even very often translate to this kind of influence that he seems to have. Yeah, I would say it's very rare. Yeah. Actually be able to influence, you know, whether it's a positive or negative thing, however you view it. But I think it's, uh, I think everyone would agree that, you know, assuming all of this is more or less accurate, that uh, he does have influence in mm. the Japanese, you know, political sphere. So, yeah, that's definitely a rarity. Yeah, yeah. sure. Mm. But oh well, yeah. that was about it. That's our, our little profile of of David Atkinson and his strange friend Seiji Wada. Yeah, um, yeah, they they don't sound too wholesome to me. <laughs> but I guess I, I guess I fall into the cynic camp. Yeah. Oh well. Well, well, I mean, I, I guess you know they're they they are producing. Uh, product right they're doing the, the lacquer thing so yep yeah so not on all bad no sir yeah mm. okay that was uh thank you for that interesting look into the uh n- another look into the political underbelly of japan uh, yes sir yeah so uh, yeah i think we'll uh, we'll leave it there mm-hmm. so uh thanks for sticking around and uh, as always, you can uh, find us on the Twitter and the Instagram. Our username is Real Japan Guys. Or you can check out our website at thereal.jp. Or email us at mail at thereal.jp. And find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So, with all that being said, we will. See everyone again next week. Goodbye, listeners. Bye-bye.